So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be reading from Romans chapter 14. And how many know that we need the power and the infilling and the presence of God's Holy Spirit now more than ever? And it is an evident thing. The, the power of this text here today, as Paul leads us in, we're kind of in the final chapters here as we head into chapter 16, but um, so many things that he discusses, and, and Pastor Pete brought out the scripture last week, and we're given the instruction from God's word to um, respect those in our authority over us and to pray for them, and that we would live peaceable lives, and for some of us politically, that might sound tough. You know, maybe we have a challenge with that, but um, I don't think the Bible says there are other conditions there and that um, that we ought to pray for them. We ought to pray for President Biden and uh, Vice President Kamala Harris, and we ought to pray for our local and municipal leaders as well, that God would save them and <laughs> he would minister his power to them and... Um, that uh, we also, of course, in the general sense, pray for America. In a few weeks, we're going to be finishing Romans um, through July. We're going to be starting the Ask the Pastor series for the summer. So we've done this in years past. There will be a box in the foyer, and we want you to feed the box. And we'll have, we're gonna, we'll have what, what, what do you have questions about or what, what kind of topic would you? I, I think the Ask the Pastor term, maybe we should change that to, you know, and so we want you to feed the box, and that's going to be coming up here in the next couple weeks as we go into um, um, the end of July and August. But how many are glad they're part of a family? I mean, today, more than ever, you can be grateful you're part of a family. And in a Christian family, we should be willing to give up our rights or our status to serve our family. This is true. In chapter 14, Paul addresses how we prefer one another. Now, I want to encourage you to really have your Bibles open because this chapter is not unlike chapter 13, but all the more, and he talks about some specific things which the church was dealing with in its day that correlate to many issues. So he, he talks here in chapter 14, and let me give this kind of a little summary here, that we ought to prefer one another. And even though we know there are things that some do that you wouldn't do, we still, in God's family, we prefer and defer to one another. So his basic instruction to the church is those who think that they're awesome, those who think that they're mature, and that those that think that they know so much, uh, smarter than the average bear um, type of people, ought to take a back seat and not impose what you believe about things that really don't matter on others. And it's, he gets very specific here. And there are those that are mature in their faith, maybe they're highly educated, knowledgeable in the scriptures. They ought to temper that with love. And why? Because you're dealing with family. You're dealing with your family. And the big idea is that liberty and knowledge be balanced with love. This whole thing today is about love. So Paul is dealing with two groups in the church that disagree about some things, and he specifically calls out three things in this text, holy days, eating meat, sacrifice to idols, and drinking alcohol, specifically wine. So there's a statistic that I thought was really interesting as it relates to this. 61% of Americans believe that the purpose of life 
The reason for life is personal enjoyment and satisfaction, right? Well, it's not that different. It's only 11 points different in the church. Uh, 50% of all Christians believe that life's purpose is for personal enjoyment and satisfaction. That means that if people wrap themselves up all in a package, it's a very small package. That there's no room for anything else. And that's really not God's idea. God's idea for the believer is to think of others first and ourselves second. So God's idea is to deal with one another in love. And that's what he really talks about in this chapter, considering ourselves no better than anyone else. Showing love means deferring what you believe about things that really don't matter. And he calls out some things and in his context with the people he's dealing with, and they relate to us today, yes they do, um, and that we're with one another, referring to one another as a Jesus follower, and we're supposed to set aside maybe our personal feeling about that so that we can display love, because it's not important. Let's read now from Romans 14, verse 1, let's start there. For the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Hmm. I guess we could stop right there, but we won't. Number two, we could just go home right now, right? One person believes that he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Notice he calls those people weak. Verse number three, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains from judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld. For the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes an honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. So what does this mean? Don't fight. Especially over stupid stuff. He says, there's some things here, just don't fight. There's a a challenge to defer our opinions in love. There's a, there's a popular uh, parable out there. I'm sure you may have heard it by Karen Maines, and it goes like this. I'm going to paraphrase it. There's a wedding, and all the guests have been invited. And the groom stands in all of his power, and, and he looks so good, and the, the crowd is amazed. And before long, the, and the music starts, dun, dun, da, da. Dun, dun, da, da. And the bride, they're all awaiting, and all the congregation arises, and the doors are open, and the bride comes in, and they're all gasping. <gasps> Her wedding dress is torn. There's mud all over it. She's got a black eye. She's bleeding from her nose. She's limping and holding one arm like this. And then someone says, oh, the bride, the church has been fighting again. Of course, the groom is Christ in the parable. And the, the, the parable points out something, that there are things that really don't matter that some people think matter, and we put it in such high priority that, that we cause division, and it doesn't matter. 
Now, we have convictions about things, and that's sure. But Paul says that we ought to be careful about those. If I invite you over to my house, and, and I've got on the grill some greasy burgers, and the, the bacon has been made, and I know that you don't eat meat, that would be very mean. It would be, I will pray for you, because I think there's some deliverance needed, right? But that's my opinion. What I'm going to do if I know you're coming over and you have an aversion to that, then I'm going to prepare some Brussels sprouts and lettuce, right? I, I, I would not be showing love if I served the greasy burger with bacon dripping with cheese. Oh. God's people should not be fighting over things that don't matter. Look at verse 7. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. So, he points out some three powerful things just in these few verses. Our life is for God, our death is for God, and purpose is found in Christ alone. That this life we live, that, that when we find him and we love him and when we serve him, we have found purpose. We have found reason to live. Verse number 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue confess to God. Isn't that a powerful statement? Every knee. It means the vilest of the vile of the vile. It means the wicked of the wicked. Those that announce their animosity toward God and in media and in the world and the hype of the world. All those that seem so high in their animacy toward God, they're going to bow a knee. Every knee will bow. Verse 12, so then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Paul says this earlier in verse 4 when he says, he stands before his own master. So everyone is responsible for their own salvation. We aren't going to heaven based upon our parents' relationship with God or so our good friends. We aren't going to heaven because we come to church and we're around people who love Jesus and are saved. And it says again, and another principle pulled out of here, is that no Christian should despise another Christian. I mean, you know, you've heard that popular, was it cool in the gang? We are family. I'm brothers and my sisters and me. Oh, yeah. And let me tell you something about your family. You can't pick your family. <laughs> Don't you wish you could, though? Come on! You've been to Thanksgiving and Christmas too. Yeah. Sometimes we consider that, though, friends with the family of God. God is our Heavenly Father. And we don't get to choose our family. Verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know that I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is in unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. 
There's that burger thing again, right? By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. I know you don't like, you know, this classic rock, and Christians shouldn't listen to it. So when you come over to my house, I'm going to turn it up really loud. I'm showing love. No. Because I only listen to Christian music, and you know, it would hurt my spirit. I would not enjoy it, and I wouldn't like the environment because I maybe don't have as much faith. I don't know what to say about that. Well, I do. I'll get that later. But you would not play that, would you? Because you would display love. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Now, Paul is teaching how vital a big word is here. The word deference is crucial for the life of the believer in the family of God. If you want to go live in a monastery as a monk somewhere, you will never have to practice deference. But deference is for the Christian who belongs to the church, which is God's idea, not man's idea. We didn't create this concept. It's a biblical idea. And that we gather together and we're encouraged and we defer our opinions about certain things from one another. Every believer. And this character quality of deference is a big one. And I want to bring out just a couple of points about it because the scripture speaks loudly about deference in our regard to relationship with one another. Deference is putting the welfare of others ahead of our own personal pleasures. This is a good idea. You know, 1 Corinthians 10.24, Paul also writes, Do not be concerned for your own good, but for the good of others. The opposite of deference is offensiveness. You know, this is true when we consider loving one another, how that we extend love and we show deference. There's one thing, but how many of you are lovable? I think sometimes a lot of people work at not being lovable. You know, if you're a believer, you should work at being lovable just as much as you are being loving. And, you know, that that's just an, an incredible concept, deference, is, is not being offensive. Not only that, but really deferring how I feel about something. And that's, that's, a, that's a tough thing for me every time we go on a missions trip because you, you've seen that show Fear Factor. It was on years ago. And they, they do the death-defying walks, you know, 100 feet off the ground. I could do that. I've hung off the side of big skyscraper and uh, apartment buildings and hung siding just on little planks. I, I'm used to walking on ladders and, you know, I'm, I'm comfortable and, and with heights. I could do all of those things. Any big bad ride that's out there at the fair, I want to do that one first. And then everything else just kind of like... But put me in those little teacup things and I'll throw up every time. I don't know. <laughs> but this is really a challenge. One thing that's really a challenge for me is eating things that I'm not comfortable eating. I got it? This is okay. This is tough. So we, we, Pam and I have been invited over to different places. One time this gal, she was from uh, Romania, I think. And she cooked this rice dish and I started just shoveling in full of little octopus, you know. <laughs> I don't care for octopus. It just tastes like, you know, an eraser to me. You know, it's kind of 
a challenge, but we just, oh, this is so good. And Pam did not eat it. I won't tell the rest of the story. You'll have to ask her about that. I've been in foreign countries, in South America, in Mexico, where I've been served, the church would provide the evening meals, serve things that I was wondering if I should eat, but I ate it anyway, because that was the best they had. I deferred how I felt about it. Now, if any one of you asked me to go to Starbucks and sit with you for an hour drinking coffee, I'll say no, but uh, I probably would go, of course. I'm not a coffee drinker. But deference is showing kindness in spite of how we feel. Deference is based on the sacrifice that Jesus made in order to bring us to salvation. Mark 10.44 says, And whoever wants to be first will be servant or slave, actually is the right word there, of all. Willing to serve without reimbursement. Deference is making personal sacrifices to help others be successful. I, I see that in those that um, work here at Abundant Life and serve in many ways toward me, in fact, as a pastor. They, they do things to make me look good, and uh, they defer sometimes, and I see their service, and I try my best to do that for others, and that's how we should act. Deference puts off words and pushes off actions that, that, that um, cause others to be offended or weakened in their faith. Deferring. We should defer whenever it will benefit the cause of Christ, whenever. Um, now, when challenged with compromise, we can't, right? I remind of years, years ago, Campus Crusade for Christ, Bill Bright had died, and his predecessor was invited to go to speak, uh, lead in prayer for the, um, the t um, Twin Towers falling, so, uh, you know, 9-11. And as he was there in the stadium with Oprah and an imam and a Catholic priest and some others, the counsel that he was given and told that he could not say the name of Jesus, he said he could not lead in prayer at that event. He was denying Christ. So we understand that there are things, there are times, right? But whenever possible for the body of Christ, we defer how we feel. Just about trivial things. Friends, it is, a mature, it is maturity to be above trivial issues so that we may serve others with the gospel. Paul writes at length about this in 1 Corinthians 10.25. If you have your fingers and you want to turn there, I think I have the scripture up here. But it says, so you may eat any meat that is sold in the marketplace without raising questions of conscience. The um, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If someone who isn't a believer asks you home for dinner, accept the invitation if you want to. Eat whatever is offered you without raising questions of conscience. But suppose someone says to you, this meat was offered to an idol. Don't eat it out of consideration for the conscience of the one who told you. It might not be a better of conscience for you, but it is for the other person. For why should my freedom be limited by someone else thinks? If I thank God for the food and enjoy it, why should I be condemned for eating it? Deference is exchanging my rights for the, for the permanent joy of someone else's spiritual growth. This is really important. You know, in, um, previously in chapter 12 and verse 10 of Romans, he writes, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. That's a powerful call, isn't it? That we honor how someone may have an opinion or feel about something above what our opinions are about it. 
Let's go on. Romans 14, verse 20. Uh, leaving that idea of deference right there. We go on in verse 20. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whoever does not proceed from faith is sin. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Now, Paul introduces some other illustrations here. He talks about um, holy days. He talks about things to eat. He talks about wine. Now, when he opens the illustration of wine, this hits home today uh, with many that may have been raised in a very traditional Pentecostal church. Um, there were those um, that abstained from wine. And, and why, do, why do we understand that? Why does that happen, right? So um, I think there's a few reasons and some points that I want to bring out. First of all, we know that drunkenness is sin. That's just what the Bible says. Ephesians chapter 5, don't get drunk leads to debauchery, right? Um, no priest was to drink alcohol while he was performing his duties, but he was permitted uh, when he was not doing his work. It was actually part of his income. Preachers wouldn't, shouldn't drink wine when performing their duties. Uh, kings were not supposed to be drinking wine while doing their judgment because it impaired their jobs and their, or their judgments and performance. Pastors and elders are not to be drunkards. They're, they cannot serve in this capacity if they are. This is um, kind of in the same plane where uh, if we want to talk about drugs and the, the contemporary um, resource we have on every corner in Washington State with the little green crosses on them. You know, you can get pot anywhere now. The purpose of pot is directly connected to an aphrodisiac, right? It's getting high. It has a purpose of losing control. And friends, i got to say, in that category then, that is sin. That is sinful, and it creates an addiction. People long for that more than they long for fellowship with their church family and the Lord. It takes away from that. Sins that were connected with drunkenness and losing control, incest, violence. Lot's daughters got him drunk and, and, and had sexual relations with him. Adultery, mockery, brawling, poverty, the Bible says. Stay, they stay up late and get up early to drink. If you drink uh, breakfast wines, you're probably already an alcoholic. Drinking games, some of the most stupid stuff. Hey, stand on this balcony and jump in the pool. Okay. Vomiting, staggering, madness, overhappiness, laughing too much, sleeping a lot, drinking strong drinks that the Bible says stay away from. Scripture says that some people try to get drunk so they can see others naked in Isaiah. Some are lazy. They drink a lot. Some drink and forget. That's kind of known as country music. <laughs> some drink when they get angry. That's known as rap music. Yeah. One of the most complex texts and the complete one that describe this best is Proverbs 23. In verse 29 it says, Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaints? Who has needless bruises? Who has bloodshot eyes? Those who linger over wine, who go and sample bowls of mixed wine, 
Do not gaze at wine when it's red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a snake and poisons like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things and your mind confusing things. You'll be like the one sleeping on the high seas, lying on top of the rigging. They hit me, you'll say, but I'm not hurt. They beat me, but I don't feel it. When will I wake up so I can have another drink? The bottom line is drunkenness is sin. There's an epidemic of alcohol and drug abuse in our country and the world. And did you know that men, 20% of men um, and 5% of women are alcoholic. They're labeled as alcoholic in, our, in America. That's staggering. And 20%, it seems so high. And, and when I looked at this, when I looked at this um, statistic, it's like, how come, or, or, I, excuse me, 20% of people that are drunks are men. 5% of drunks are women. Excuse me about that. Al alcoholics. 20% of all alcoholics are men. Five, yeah, the statistic is th that 20% of men are alcoholics. That's what it says. And 5% of women are alcoholics. There we go. The difference is huge. 15 percentage points. And, and it's just, it's, it's absolutely astronomical. You know, when I was um, researching this, the, the difference here, um, let me just bring that statistic out um, because I brought it up so quickly. Um, from, you can look it up um, from Life Sciences, um, from June Wren, talks about it from a 2010 study that the differences, the differences between men and women is astronomical. 15% are different. 20% um, evidence suggests nearly 20% of adult males have alcohol abuse or suffer from alcohol-related uh, complications. There we go. Some clarity. On the other hand, only 5 to 6% of females are alcoholic or abuse alcohol on a regular basis. Wow. That's sad, isn't it? It says something about men, but there's an epidemic of alcohol and drug abuse in our country. Being drunk is sin. So with that being said, what does the Bible say about just drinking alcohol? Since there seems to be a separation between being an alcoholic and just drinking wine, what does the Bible say? I mean, if we really want to know the truth of God's word, we've got to be willing to recognize that. Many, especially, I think, in Pentecostal circles have said some unbiblical things about wine. They say that Jesus never drank alcohol, and if he did, then he's not God. Well, that's an outlandish statement, and it's not true. Psalm 104, verses 14, the Bible says, Wine gladdens the heart of men. John chapter 2, Jesus' first wedding, the first miracle that he performed, he turned water to wine. He makes, a he makes between 100 and 180 gallons of wine. He made wine, but he never drank, some say. Well, that's not true. Did Jesus drink? The Bible says in Matthew eleven nineteen, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you call him a drunkard and glutton, sitting with prostitutes and sinners. Did Jesus ever get drunk? No. Hebrews tells us that he was tempted in every way, yet was without sin. For someone to say that God made it and Jesus sinned when he touched it is just not true, because God would be sinning. When the Bible says wine, it clearly says wine, and when it says new wine 
or unfermented or juice, it means juice. It gives us careful separation. Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 22, wine mixed with water was ripping people off and it was condemned. It doesn't mean, as many have translated, that Christians were watering it down to remove the alcohol content. In Numbers chapter 6 and verse 3, the Bible does talk about grape juice, and the Bible is very specific when it mentions juice and mentions wine. They're separate things. Wine is spoken of in Scripture as good and bad. I mean, by uh, the feasts, all the feasts have wine. Uh, Paul tells Timothy to take a little wine for his stomach, and wine was brought as part of the offering as well. The presence of wine was often a sign of God's blessing on someone in their life. Deuteronomy chapter 14 and verse 26, after God worked, after the people worked hard, they paid their tithe, they had taken care of their families, and taking care of the poor, then the extra money was to be used for things that their heart lusteth after. And one of the things in the list is wine. And my list would include motorcycles and parts and things like that. But what does the church history say about alcohol? Well, St. Gall, the great ministry, the great missionary to the Celts, he was Irish, was not known for his great preaching, rather for his brewing. brewing. After the reign of Charlemagne in Europe, one, one church was known for being brewers, and that was the, the church. When a young Christian woman was to be married in Europe, they would make a special bridal ale. And the church, not the pub, would be the ones that brew, to brew the ale. The pub it was uh, the church, the pub had the church leaders in it. And the church leaders were the same men as the leaders in the, uh, in the pub. John Calvin had his pastoral compensation each with 250 gallons of wine each year rather than books. I wonder that's why we got Calvin in here. <laughs> Luther's wife, Catherine. He said he married her because she was a certified brewer. In fact, he wrote love letters, and when they were separated, letting her know that he was traveling and there was nothing to drink here, and he couldn't wait to get home because she was such a good brewer. When the Puritans landed in America, they didn't build a church first. They built a brewery. Most of the, cha most of the changes in the church in this came from Ireland. The pubs were not this sort of drunken sorority place that we think of or a college dorm room, but rather places of social gathering. And they were very different than what we maybe consider them today. Getting drunk was inappropriate. It was thought to be something you didn't do. Doing business, having conversations, and playing darts was all part of the gathering. The, the pub served a function in the, to the community. The people in the pubs were largely men, and the women didn't like it, so they started prohibition. Alcohol was outlawed. Smaller breweries went out of business, and the larger ones survived, making root beers or near beers. Giving the excuse that something is abused is not a good reason to stop doing it. There's a lot of things that are abused, lots of stuff. Hosea chapter 2 and verse 8, the scripture says that God gave them food, he gave them drink and wealth, and they used it for sin. So they had an abundance but they abused what God had given. Just because people abuse something doesn't mean that doing that thing is sin. They say we should get rid of everything that causes people to stumble. Well, man, you should get rid of chocolate around me. Right? We can't get rid of everything that causes people to stumble. So we make up rules sometimes that aren't in the Bible. But hang on with me before some of you old line Pentecostals are ready to throw your Bibles at me. Hang on there, because I 
This doesn't end the way that it's going. Some are ready at one point in our history in churches to set the drums on fire and, and the electric guitars, quit going to movies, and we all wear suits and ties and all read the King James Bible. We're all uptight and we can't wait to go to heaven because we can't stand being in church. When Jesus came, he, did he break the rules in, script, in the Bible? He never did. Does he break the rules of religious tradition, though? Yes, he does. And boldly so. And ultimately, the rules bring him to the cross. Food causes people to stumble, eating disorders, overeating, anorexia. Should people, should we outlaw food? Some people speed. Maybe we should quit driving. Martin Luther's famous quote about this is, he says this. He says, do you suppose abuses are eliminated by destroying the objects that are abused? Men can go wrong with wine and women. Shall we then abolish and prohibit women? Some worship the stars. Should we pluck them out of the sky? Now, before we all leave here and head to the tavern for a beer, <laughs> why do some Christians abstain? I don't drink alcohol. I never have. And I'm really kind of glad. I'm blessed by my heritage, really a couple generations deep that has this conviction. I have no desire for it. It smells bad. I have no interest. I've never even tasted beer. I was tricked one time as a youth into drinking a cup of peppermint schnapps that my friend had set up when I came into the bathroom in his house. He had just set the table for dinner. His parents had called and and he dumped this in a glass, and he had a glass too. And he said, hey, hey, Ellis, let's have a guzzling race. I said, okay. So I grabbed the glass, and I started, oh, man, my mouth was on fire. I spit it all over the table. He had just set the table, so we had to wash all the dishes. I have no desire for it. But there are some other reasons that Christians don't drink alcohol besides their upbringing, which I totally appreciate and respect. Even though Paul calls those people weak here that they should not eat meat, holy days, or drink wine, there are other reasons. Our good friend, Dr. Thomas Welch, created grape juice because he didn't want to serve alcohol anymore in the receiving of communion wine. So he skipped the process, uh, which is very carefully controlled to make wine, as you know. So was he a lunatic? Why did he remove alcohol from communion? It was so funny. We were visiting my son and uh, his wife in Texas, and we were sitting there, and we were attending their church that they had been going to at the time, and some friends had invited them, so we went, and it was, it was, it was really actually a great service. Um, we sat there, and he said the first time, Okay, here we go. I don't know what happened there. Do you know what happened? Something happened. Right? The signal was lost. The airplane flew over. Who knows? Um, he removed the alcohol from communion, and we, we say that he was just one of those who was weak. So there's another, but there are other reasons that people abstain from alcohol, and I, I wanted to present those to you because I think that they're very important, and, um, and 
it was preached many years during the prohibition and abstinence from alcohol um, of recorded church history. And how many know we, live, we are living in Acts 29? It's not equal to the Bible, but there will be revival in the last day. So the first reason, really in American tradition, how this came out to be was through the Great Awakenings. Um, when I was a youth pastor, I had gone to uh, one of the ecumenical churches, pastor's houses in, in Oregon, and he invited me over. And I was surprised at all the youth pastors there that there was beer on the counter as we were um, watching a game together. And I was, I was blown away because I was like the only one in this group of, of pastors that, that's just like this. I thought that, you know, this is just not right. Well, there's some reasons I think the Pentecostal charismatic people have a certain conviction about this, and I want to share it with you. And the first one is because of the Great Awakenings. Solomon Stoddard in the early 1700s and his grandson, of course, Jonathan Edwards, as you know, in the 1730s were part of the Great Awakening that produced the message against drinking. And what was happening is that there was a revival happening in America, in the church. There was a spiritual awakening so that the, there were heightened convictions among the people and they believed this was something that they should stay away from, that it wasn't good for people uh, that were growing in their faith, especially young believers. The famous Rochester Revival of the 1830s with one of my heroes of Great Awakenings, Charles Finney, um, uh, echoed the plague that was terrorizing America, alcoholism, and that Christians should abstain. It was during the Rochester Revival that people became drunk with the Holy Spirit rather than with wine, and the meetings, and I quote, lost some of their forms of dignity. Praise God. <laughs> Pentecostals. The Third Great Awakening in the 1850s were signs following more, and history records more than a million people were saved during this time. But the message that was called holiness recorded Christians moving away from drinking alcohol and seeking more of the holiness of God. In 1906 to 1909, a young black preacher by the name of William Seymour and and Azusa Street in Los Angeles, right? The Azusa Street Revival. And the message that came was a call to holiness. And that came because of the evident outpouring of the Holy Spirit. One of the holiness points that the preaching was consumed by was this abstinence from alcohol. Nearly all the message that came out from that outpouring of the Holy Spirit contained that, that part of the message. Famous baseball player who got saved and became the nation's... Um, uh, foremost evangelist, Billy Sunday, in 1919, gave one of the fo most famous anti-alcohol sermons during the Boston Crusades and Revival. He said, whiskey and beer are all right in their place, but that place is hell. <laughs> are you uncomfortable yet? I believe in this. I understand that Paul means when he writes, do not get drunk with wine, rather be filled with the Spirit. I think he was meaning something. He understood what that meant. Secondly, because for some, not everything is beneficial. 1 Corinthians 6.12, everything is permissible for me, right? Grace, by His grace I'm saved through faith. I believe in Jesus. It's because of His grace. He covers my sin, my inadequateness. I know that there's nothing I can do to be saved. He loves me as I am. And I am free in faith, I can do whatever I want. Paul says, I can do anything, but not everything is beneficial, he says. 
everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. My Lord and Savior is Jesus. He is the one I'm serving. He is the one I want to lean on. He is the one that I need encouragement from. He is the one that is my source. He is the one where I will be filled with the Spirit and not drunk with wine. Paul says that because he's no longer bound to the law, he can do whatever he wants, right? But the acknowledgement here is that there are things that can become controlling, things that will master him, and he won't allow that to happen. And thirdly, because of love. Just like those who may not have a certain conviction about it would show deference toward those whose, quote, faith is weak by not doing it in their presence, if you know an alcoholic, you don't take him to the bar to have a happy birthday, right? That's what he's, that's in part kind of what he's saying, that there's no love being shown here by doing that. On the other side, there are those who, I don't want to be a stumbling block for anyone. Romans 15, we who are strong have an obligation with the feelings of the weak, failings of the weak, not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who approach you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through in the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So for those who don't drink alcohol because for you, you believe that it would be sin, welcome to my world. But that's not what the Bible says, right? I mean, honestly, it says that I am the weaker brother. Now, maybe Paul knows that if, uh, if some start drinking, they just won't stop, right? The point of it that he's making is love in all things and above all things. That we defer what we think about these things and we consider them insignificant issues and keep our eyes focused on how best to love one another. And here's what that looks like. If, you, if I know that you have a day of rest set aside, and I ask you to fix my roof on that day of rest, I'm not showing love. If I understand your conviction about drinking alcohol, I'm not going to drink any alcohol in your presence. If I know that you believe you're glorifying God by staying away from bacon, again, I'm going to intercede for you. But in love. I'll serve something else. If I understand that you only like to listen to this or that, I'll put this or that on the station. If you have a conviction about games or movies or things with pop culture, I will accommodate and defer to how you are feeling more than what I want to do. Because that's love. Because you're the family of God. We are the family of God. And my siblings in the Lord and I will be bent on knowing you and giving you the grace and love that our Heavenly Father has shown to us, right? 1 Corinthians 13, 4. Love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. 
is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It does not, it is not irritable. <laughs> oh, man. Or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. So there's three big ideas. Don't fight over trivial stuff. Show love, number two, by deferring what you want for the sake of others. And thirdly, we've got to be filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was Paul's statement in Ephesians 5.16. He knew what he was talking about. Don't get drunk with wine. Don't have your focus be on that thing. But rather be filled with the Holy Spirit. Does it make sense? Praise God. And you'll look it up and forgive me for my statistic misquote. Stand with me, would you? Pam, would you come? I want to ask those um, of our elders that are present, if you guys would come with your wives if they're available, our staff, Pastor Josh and Jim as well. You guys come up. I want, I want some people to be able to pray with you. Let's spread out here. I, I want to make a couple of invitations today. And, and I want you to consider them deeply because... I believe that the work of God by the power of the Holy Spirit is our deliverer. That he can pull us out of places of things that we can't break. And I also believe he is the lover of our souls and that we need to extend love as he has loved us.